Well, welcome. Before we get um, started with the sermon this morning, it's probably worth our mentioning and having a quick pray. If you didn't know, Ben and Laura Atkin, who've been here for a little while now, they got married last year in 2010, 2020, sorry, when they were only allowed, where the number 10 comes from is that was the number of guests that they were allowed at their wedding. Um, and that was only by a matter of two days. Two days before that, they were looking at just having the bridal party there. Um, and so they are actually having another wedding today even though they've been married for a year now, but they can have their family and friends along. And so I thought it'd just be nice for us to, to pray for them this morning and, and pray that that would go well. Also, that the gospel is going to be preached there for their friends who, are, who, who don't know Jesus, and so we can pray for that as well. Um, Father, we do, we commit this event later today um, to you, praying uh, the touch of your grace. Um, we thank you for this beautiful marriage that you've um, placed in the, in the Atkin household, but we also pray as well, Lord, that um, that today you would both encourage them towards one another, that you would um, allow them the experience of having their family and friends there to support this, this, wonderful, this wonderful marriage of two Christian people. Lord, we pray that your message would be heard and be felt to be powerful, um, that you would move and grow your kingdom through the, the faith of this Christian couple. We pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Great. So, if you don't know, we've been making our way through the book of Romans, and hasn't it been a hoot? Um, yeah, Small Ground Today has one of two sources. One, it's either everyone's going to the wedding, or two, we've scared you all off by preaching through Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2, um, and dealing with the problem of sin so thoroughly. Um, this, is, this is what's going to happen from time to time as we make our way through the book of Romans is that we are going to find ourselves coming up against um, some passages which are going to require a little more from us than other parts of the Bible. It's a deep book, and that, that depth requires from us a kind of attention and a kind of effort and a, a kind of listening that um, is, is a little bit more demanding than some of the other parts of the Bible. This proves true today. We are digging through some of the, the more complex parts of the passages that we've already kind of read through um, in, in the big version, but there is gold to be found here that we would be sad to miss out on. And so um, this morning I'm going to labor, not to thank, make things more complicated than they need to be, but also invite you to, to join me in the effort of, of finding the gems in the more complex parts of the Bible. Um, we're going to be dancing around between um, chapters 1 and chapter 2 of the book of Romans. If you do want to get, your, um, get a finger into a Bible and, and have a read along with us, and while you're doing that, um, when I was preparing this week, I thought of a thing. There's a, there's a really useful sentence in the English language. It's worth knowing. And the sentence is this. Yeah, but it isn't, is it? Yeah, but it isn't, isn't. It's really useful. It's really useful. My, my children find this, this really useful. I, sp I speak to one of them. Why did, you, why did you hit your sister? Well, because she pushed me. That's... Yeah, but it isn't, is it? You, you, no, one, no one makes you hit somebody. This is, this is a, an excuse that we make to take something which is our responsibility and to put the responsibility of it on someone else. Do you know what I mean? It's the, this is your fault. Yeah. No. No, it's not. Um, it's, a, it's a really useful excuse. It, it turns out that there's, a, there's an argument being built here in the book of Romans um, the central theme of which is going to be the good news, but before we get to the good news, we've got to get through the bad news. The, the good news that we're going to spend so long unpacking and developing is that um, there is a salvation that comes through faith in Jesus the Saviour alone. That's the good news that we are steadily working our way towards, but to get there first, we need to see the bad news. And so, for the beginning part of Romans, we've been seeing what the bad news is. We've been seeing the great 
problem that faces the entire human race, the thing which makes us need saving. Um, in chapter one, what we saw was that the whole world is under the problem of sin. And what we saw last week, digging in through the, the big chunk of chapter two, we've been told that that includes God's chosen people, the Jews. And so we see that everybody is under the problem of sin. That's the dilemma. On, on account of this problem, the, on account of these things, the wrath of God is being revealed and is still coming. We've seen thus far in an even stronger measure. We are all in quite the predicament. We all need saving. We're in need of rescue. Where is, is the big question, where is that rescue going to come from? Where can we run to to escape our sinful predicament? Where can we find shelter from the storm of God's righteous wrath? What do we have to do in order to receive this salvation? Those should be the questions running through our minds at this point in the book of Romans. And when we get to near the end of chapter 3, we've got to start getting the answer really clearly. Um, The answer is salvation comes through faith in Jesus alone. Salvation comes through faith in Jesus alone alone. But in order to get there, there is one last impediment for us to get around, a last last blockage to our being willing to hear that message. And the blockage is, yeah, but it isn't, is it? It's, it's it's, It's God has said, we are sinful, and there is something in us that goes, but, but I'm not though. And, and what that looks like is different depending on uh, what your background is. We have to give up. We have to surrender our other options for rescue before we can receive Jesus as our rescue. Do you know what I'm saying? We have to, we have to sort of lay down a few kind of bad solutions before we can give our attention to the right solution. And here in the book of Romans, we've actually come across two bad solutions to this problem already. Do you remember when we said in in the Church of Rome, there's two main loose groups of people in the church, the Jews and the Gentiles, and each one of those groups has a stereotypical response to the accusation of their own sinfulness. For the Gentiles, the excuse is this, they plead ignorance. How How can God hold me to account for a thing I didn't know to be true? You feel that one? God says, all have sinned. That includes you. You're like, yeah, but <laughs> I didn't know. We were, we were ignorant. Um, and for the, the Jewish portion of the congregation, their excuse goes something like this. Yeah, but it's not us though, is it? Because like, we've, we've got the law and stuff, so take it to heaven. We're God's chosen people, right? The problem of sin isn't my problem. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to dig into both of these they're more like diffusions, aren't they? Sort of misdirections. It's, the, it's that part of our human nature that when God says something to us clearly and directly, we kind of just, kind of just, just sidestep that bad boy and pass it on to somebody else. Why don't we consider them um, each in turn? And the first is this, that for the Gentiles, we may find ourselves pleading ignorance. Can you feel the logic of the complaint? It's an appeal, really, to, to fairness, isn't it? How is it that God can hold me accountable? How is it that God could hold them accountable for breaking his rules if I've never heard them? There's, there's a logic to it. This, is, this isn't an excuse that comes from nowhere. It's, it's kind of an obvious 
question for us to ask. That's, that's it. it. Ultimately, isn't it? It's just, it's an appeal to fairness. For God to judge those who've never heard means what? That God is unfair? Do we dare say the word? We feel it sometimes, certainly. There's two kinds of people who make this argument. And the first is the, um, the unbelieving folk. That was Mike, for the record. Um, two kinds of people who make this argument. The first is the unbelieving folk who want God to leave them alone. Was this you? Is this you? You, you? You've come across this message that there's a dilemma in the world, that there's a brokenness in the world, that brokenness is actually in you. And you don't like it. But rather than dealing with the fact that it's true, we, we, we just kind of go, but, but I, I didn't know. But I didn't know. Um, it's an irony, though, because by making this claim, you are proving that you know more than nothing, aren't you? That... <laughs> You can't say, I didn't know, without knowing that you need to say, I didn't know. Um, and the other group of people who actually make this, this argument often are Christians who are uncomfortable with the idea that God's judgment comes to those who've never heard. It's a kind of a, a misplaced compassion. The next passages that we're going to read, going from the beginning of um, Romans, uh, chunks of Romans 1 and chunks of 2, are, are the passages that we've skimmed over thus far so that we could see that big picture of the argument that's being developed. But we've, we're going to circle back around and kind of dig into this theme, which has actually emerged several times thus far in the book of Romans, where the Apostle Paul has kind of taken that excuse, preempted that excuse, and he's been slowly making it unavailable to us, uh, like, like the master that he is. Um, there's three, at least three reasons that we've come across already why the Gentiles cannot plead ignorance to the problem of sin. They are this, uh, they can't plead ignorance because of creation. We, we can't plead ignorance because of our will. And we can't plead ignorance because of our conscience. Why don't we look, look at them all? Um, the first one, creation, came up in Romans 1, verses 19 and 20. Mike absolutely did touch on this, but we'll look back at it again. Um, in Romans 1, 19 and 20, we see that the Bible insists that God has revealed enough to all humans to hold us responsible for our sin. Through creation, God has revealed enough of himself to hold us all responsible for our sin. This is what it says in Romans 1, 19 and 20. He says, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And so they are without excuse. Reason number one why we can't plead ignorance to the problem of sin is this, that there is enough information about God available in creation um, to at least condemn us, if not to save us. There is, there is enough evidence of a creator in the creation that we should know that there is a creator to whom we give an account. Because if there is a creator, we give account to him, don't we? If, if you exist because you were made by somebody, then that person has certain rights to expect what you are for if there is a creator, you are accountable to them. And in creation itself, the argument goes, there's enough information there to see that there is a creator. So many people have made this argument, right? Even, even in the modern day, this, this is an argument that's made often. Actually, the, the famous atheist, is it, I get them confused. One's a Christian, one's an atheist, the Hitchens brothers. Which one's the atheist? I believe it's Christopher. Sorry, Peter, if you're the one. Famous atheist, like, traveled around the world trying to convince people there was no God for a career. 
he said that this argument was the, the biggest hole in his thing. That, that, that the world does seem to have been made on purpose. Just, just couldn't, couldn't argue around it. We can't plead ignorance because when we look at this world, it's purposeful. It's, it's coherent. It's ordered. It's not perfect, but that fits with what the Bible says, isn't it? But it is, it is designed. Um, this is the next thing it tells us, that the reason why we can't plead ignorance. We can't plead ignorance because of our own willfulness. Because this, this, like if we, when we plead ignorance, ultimately what we're saying is it's not my fault. I didn't do it on purpose. I was ignorant. It wasn't, it wasn't my responsibility. But in Romans 1.32, this is what we read, um, that we didn't just sin by accident. We sinned on purpose. It says, though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Do you feel that one? They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. This is the accusation being made by the Bible that, that sin isn't just an accident, it is willful. It is on purpose, even by those who would plead ignorance. Have you seen this at play? Like, I, I had the joyful experience a, a, a year or two ago watching one of our local state members of parliament dancing on the floor of parliament on the day when they voted in the radical abortion bill. Dancing. Why do you, why do you dance over people being able to murder babies? Dance. Literally dancing. Like, let, let, even if there is no God. Do, do you feel that? Why, why would we dance. We can murder babies. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense unless it is an act of willful rebellion against God. It turns out that this principle plays itself out again and again and again and again in the human race. We don't just sin accidentally. We give our approval to those who sin. Think about any kind of entertainment media you've ever seen. What do we love about them? Is it their lifestyle of modesty and humility that draws our attention or is it their flagrant disregard for God's boundaries that makes them entertaining? It turns out that when we sin, for people who are ignorant of what God wants of us, we are very good at specifically finding the things that he wants and breaking them. Even though we knew God's righteous decree. Now, that knowledge isn't someone told it to me and I heard it. Do you see, do you see what he's saying? It's, there is an innate human knowledge of God's righteous decree. It's it's there from creation. It's, it, there's a, there is a sense of the divine in all of us. And not only is it there, but we all willfully break it, whether we've heard the words or not. Do you think it's like in, in the, the olden times, as European explorers started heading out around the globe and finding all the different cultures that they didn't know existed, that they were waiting for the day when they would come across a culture that was sinless and perfect? One of these cultures that had never heard the name of Jesus, maybe where people were just treating each other well and fairly. That day never came because sin isn't accidental. Sin is willful. Notice the venom that the world has for God and his ways. It's not a coincidence. And actually the truth of what Paul said to us in verse 32 is, is easier to see now than it has been in a lifetime. 
Actually, the, the last way he tells us that we can't plead ignorance is he tells us in, in, in chapter 2, going from verses 12 to 16, that ultimately we all know by conscience God's righteous decree. We should be able to see it in the world around us. We should be able to see it in the fact of how, how willful our sin is, and we should be able to see it um, by that internal moral compass that we all possess. Romans 2, 12 to 16 says, All who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their, consciences, while, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Actually, um, an interesting thing about this passage is it's one of the things it's being used for is to argue for the precise opposite thing that it's being used to argue for by the Apostle Paul. Um, I, I've had this conversation with, with some of you recently that, um, that some have taken this passage to mean that there are some Gentiles who have never heard of God's law who obey it by accident and are justified. Do you feel that? Could you see where they get that from? It's, it's a misreading of verse 14, probably, most of all, where it says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. Verse 15 says, they show that the work of, law, of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. I suppose they look at that word excuse and think that it is possible that there are some people who will be excused on judgment day by their conscience and their ignorance together. Of course, for that to be true, verse 12 would have to not be in your Bible. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Show me the one who has not sinned. That person does not exist. No, what this passage is arguing is that all of us, to some degree, whether we have heard the law or not, as imperfect as the, as the conscience might be, it's there. There is not a human being alive who has never felt the stab of their conscience telling them that was out of line. And whether or not that conscience is telling them exactly what the Word of God has said, in fact, we, we know that it's not exactly. What it is, is enough to prevent us from pleading ignorance. You know. You know. You know that when we read the Bible and we find out that there is a problem of sin in this world, you know it's true. The only thing that prevents us from seeing that that is true is these walls of defenses that, that the apostle and God through him is, is dismantling for us as he builds his case for salvation by faith. You know there's a problem in the world. And you know that problem is in you as well. Your conscience tells you. The decisions that you have made, your willfulness tells you. And the world that you live in tells you. And none of that is enough to save you. 
but it is enough to destroy the excuse of ignorance. That is the argument against ignorance um, from the book of Romans. Now, why, why would he be saying these things to the Gentile, do you think? Why, why bother with a, a message like that? It seems harsh, doesn't it? The answer is simple. Ignorance can't save you, but Jesus absolutely can. And for, in order for you to see him and to hear him and to understand what his message is all about, you need to understand that you need rescuing and that there is no other way for you to be rescued. And telling us this problem that we have, the Apostle Paul is showing us a great kindness. That's where all of this is going. Ignorance can't save you, but Jesus can. So let's put the diffusion away and deal with the real God. The next group of people sitting in his church who are sitting there listening to this message and going, that message applies to somebody else. The Jews, perhaps. There was an attitude amongst the Jews which, uh, which went like this. We, uh, we look to the law and our possession of the law. We look to our status as God's special chosen people and we conclude, therefore, the problem of sin is somebody else's problem. God won't judge me. I'm one of the special ones. Do you feel it? We, we, we might feel the same way today if, we are, if we're raised in a Christian home. I'm one of God's people. How do you know? My whole family is. Therefore, the problem of sin is somebody else's problem. Of course, of course God is going to give his salvation to me, right? I'm one, I'm one of the special ones. It would, maybe we wouldn't say it like that in Australia, but, but we think like it and we act like it sometimes. And it certainly was a common thought amongst the first century Hebrews. We know we are God's people, they would think, because we have the Torah, the, the law of Moses. We have all of the, the signs of being, we've kept the external signs of, of, of belonging to him. We've been circumcised. We're eating the right foods. We keep the Sabbath. We're, we're God's people. So therefore, the problem of sin is somebody else's problem. I don't need a savior. Moses is my savior. Do you understand? Moses has, has given me the law by which I am included. I belong to Israel. And in saying these things, they have a lot in common with our multi-generational Christians. If you think about it, they've got a better reason to say that than multi-generational Christians. Because never in the, in, the, in the Christian faith has this ever been a thing which was perceived to be how salvation works. Paul's pushback here is controversial um, precisely because the law of Moses is God's own law. To say that the law can't save you could be seen as an insult against God, couldn't it? Like, God's gone to all the trouble of delivering this law. He's had his nation, Israel, preserve this law for how many thousands of years now have they been living in this law? And now there's this upstart of an apostle who didn't even get to become an apostle until after Jesus rose from the dead, telling us that that law that God went to all that trouble of giving to us is of no use when it comes to salvation. Even the law of Moses cannot save someone from the problem of sin. We should be at least a little bit shocked to hear that, I think. If anything was going to work, it would be that, right? Like if there was going to be an option other than Jesus, what better option could we find than I kept God's law, of course I'm his person, of course I belong to the, to the chosen people. And yet here it is clear as day. No, that's not how this works. 
Why not? We read it last week, Romans 2, 23 to 25. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. Actually, as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed amongst the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Do you see what he's saying? That you may have kept to the external forms of God's chosen people. For the Hebrews, that, was, that were really crystal clear, weren't they? It was circumcision, dietary requirements, being in a synagogue on a Sabbath, Sabbathing well for the rest of the day. These, this, this was the external form of the Hebrew religion. Not a summary of the whole law, a summary of the external parts of the law. For the Christian, what is it? I was in church on a Sunday, maybe. I was on a roster. I was I, I welcomed. I, I, I taught Sunday school. I, 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 I sang. Therefore, I'm one of God's chosen people. You who boast in the law, who boast in your obedience to God's commandments, it turns out that you also dishonor God by breaking the law. Ours is just a made-up one, too. Here's the problem with it. If the law was going to save anybody, don't you think in the last several thousand years of it being on this earth that somebody would have been saved by it? That there would be somebody somewhere on this earth that we could point to and say, this person, this person kept God's law and has been saved by their obedience. That's the shocking thing in this. It's actually clear. If you kept the law, it would save you. It's just that nobody's ever done it. And nobody ever will, except for Jesus himself. If you try and sidestep the the problem of sin with the excuse of your own obedience to some small portion of what God has said, it, it doesn't get you around the problem. What about the parts that you weren't obedient to? I think we need to hear this. Where does our confidence come from to stand before God as one of his people? The answer is not, my obedience is my confidence. The answer should never be, my obedience is my confidence. The answer should be, I have the confidence to stand before God because I have the grace of his son. Actually, he's going to get here really soon, which makes it all crystal clear for us. Romans 3.20 says this, By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. I'm going to read it again. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin of sin. We must conclude that as holy as the origins of the law are, it's God's own words, it's God's own rules. As important as the law is for salvation, it is useless. Useless. Actually, rather than saving people, All the law has ever done is to clarify our sinfulness. 
Why would God go to all the trouble of giving us a law which does nothing but condemn? It's hard, isn't it? It's hard to hear. Why would God go to all the trouble of giving us a law which does nothing but condemn? Well, it turns out it's for the same reasons that he spoke to the Gentiles in the way that he spoke to them in the first two chapters. It's to show you a kindness. You have a need. What you need is a saviour. And Moses is not the saviour. Jesus is. Faith in the God who saves. Actually, we're going to get into that way way more depth later in the book to show that this is how it's always been. Salvation has always been by faith. Do you see what's happening? Thus far, what we've been told in this letter is that no matter what our background is, it doesn't matter whether you are here this morning because you're, this is what you've done with your entire life or this is the first time you've ever entered the doors of a church, no matter what your background is, no matter what your creed is, no matter what your race is, no matter what kind of person you are, the entirety of the human species has a problem. We are all under the problem of our own sinfulness. We have all rebelled against the holy God and because of this rebellion, the wrath of God is coming. Judgment is assured. We need a way to escape the problem that we have created and for us to have the real, the real solution, the possible solution, the only possible solution. To get a hold of that, you have to put down all your fake solutions first. What is yours? What, what, what is the thing in your life that when you know that God is speaking to you through his word and saying this, this part of your life should belong to me or this, your entire life should belong to me. What is the excuse that comes into your mind that says, yeah, but I don't need that. Be it the excuse of I'm already one of the special ones or the excuse of I didn't know. Both of those things will keep you away from the living God. Excuses are not your friends when it comes to where you stand ultimately before the God of heaven who made you. Jesus is your friend. God has made known to us that there is a real solution to the problem of sin. That solution is his son who fulfilled the law that we couldn't fulfill, who lived the kind of life that we cannot live, who died in our place and for our sins, and who rose again from the dead in victory over sin and death. He, he can save you. He can rescue you from the problem of sin. He can do what your excuses and your birth and your family and your history cannot do. He can do what the law of God itself cannot do. He alone is worthy, right? And he's willing. He is willing to have you even now. If you would turn to him in faith to be saved, you would be saved. If you have turned to him in faith to be saved, you are saved. By works of the law, no one is or has or ever will be justified. But all who call on the name of Jesus are saved. 
That means you. So call on him. Stop, stop making the excuse that you've been making. Put down your reason to stop growing. Put down your reason to, to, to not be one of his in sincerity instead of just on the outside. Come. Come and know the thing that you yourself cannot produce. Come and know the, the mercy and the kindness and the grace of God. It must be by grace. There is no other option. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these bits which we had heard already and yet not yet heard. We thank you for a book like Romans, which is so, so thorough in explaining to us the way of grace. Lord, I would like to confess today that I often take your grace for granted. That I presume upon it. That I forget my need of repentance and forget my need of a saviour. Thank you for uh, a morning like this morning where again and afresh my need of your grace is brought to my attention. I need it. I do need it. Lord, your accusations are true. I'm sinful. Convince, <laughs> convince that last part of me that doesn't believe it, that it's true, that I'm, that I'm sinful. That I am without hope were it not for your grace. That I cannot plead ignorance. That I am willfully sinful in the face of all you've given me in creation and in the face of what I know to be true. I need rescue, Lord. So get my heart into the place that it needs to be in in order to receive rescue. My God and my Father, I pray that you would do what you alone can do and to take this sinner and make, make me whole. Make me yours. Bring me near. Give me a, a hope and a future that I could not have were it not for grace. Make that word as precious as it should, should be in my ears. Grace, undeserved kindness. I need it. It's the only kind of kindness I will ever receive from you. And how richly available you have made that grace. We pray that all who would hear of Jesus the Savior would come. We pray that any here today who have yet to receive you in your loving salvation, your gracious reconciliation, would do so even now. 
And Lord, for those of us who are yours, we pray that you would move us again and afresh to be living lives founded not on the confidence of our perfection, but every day to build ourselves on your grace. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus, the name above all names, because there is no other name by which we must be saved. Amen.